I love hearing from doctors who disagree with me and saying, that's crazy what you're talking about. It's never going to fly because of this, this, and this reason. That's the beauty of social media, that you're able to even voice those ideas because in the real world, those opportunities just aren't there. Colin Hung is editor and chief marketing officer for Healthcare Seat. He's also co-founder of the Healthcare Leadership Tweet Chat, which is one of the most popular and active healthcare social media communities on Twitter. Colin, great to have you with us here today. Let's start with COVID-19. How has it impacted your coverage? One of the biggest changes, of course, is COVID-19 and the pandemic is pretty much what only thing people want to talk about right now. There's there's no other topic that is uh, getting the attention of anybody, of any of our readers. So people... Despite, you know, being inundated with news from a variety of sources, people, this is what they want to read about. This is what they want. This is what they want to talk about. So the biggest change is that it's dominated by this one topic, COVID, COVID, COVID. Uh, Whether you're talking about technology that will help with the situation or whether it's PPE or whether it's companies just banding together to do things to help each other survive. Or if it's related to some incredible technologies that are coming to the fore now. Uh, that were maybe a little bit more dormant before. I mean, all of these are things that have changed in the last six weeks. You know, I think the the one that you hear over and over again is, of course, telehealth has experienced its renaissance, right? Like, you know, it, it was on the agenda and the priority list for some organizations, but nowhere near to the level where it's enjoying um, the sunlight now. Uh, so that's really what's changed in the last uh, six weeks is just really the hyper intensive focus on the pandemic and everything around it. Well, it's funny, as you mentioned, telehealth, uh, my wife who works in a public school system, so she's not really involved in the healthcare uh, situation other than being a patient, but she, she had a, uh, you know, a doctor's appointment and it was the kind of thing they set up a telehealth meeting. She hadn't done it before. And after the experience, she loved it because she was able to meet face to face with the doctor in a sense, virtually. And uh, they were able to go through things. And of course, she didn't have to drive to the office, sit in the waiting room, drive back home or back to work. And and the experience was, uh, you know, something that she found surprisingly pleasant. So it won't work in all cases. But I think as patients experience it, who had never had anything to do with in the past, they'll probably be less resistant and more open to it once all is said and done. Yeah, and I think it works both ways. I certainly hear this story a lot from patients who never tried it before, who all of a sudden tried it for the first time because of COVID, and and they love it because it's so convenient. They didn't have to drive in. Uh, you know, it, it was only like a, they only needed five minutes, and so they got five minutes. Where if you drive in to see someone and you they only see you for two minutes, you're like mad, right? Yet the same amount of time on telehealth seems to be like it's okay. <laughs> um, and especially now when no one wants to be out and no one wants to be, you know, visiting a doctor's office or going to the hospital. So, uh, you know, telehealth is the only way. But equally, I would say it happens on the provider side, on the clinician side. I think there was some reluctance uh, to adopting the solution. They would much rather see patients in person because, of course, they can notice things and see things that perhaps are more difficult than via a video but now that I think physicians have had a chance to adopt and try the software, they are also finding, oh, this isn't as bad maybe as I originally thought. This is actually pretty convenient. I can see a few more patients. They really didn't have to come in. Uh, you know, the technology is is not as unusable maybe as maybe the, the original EHRs were. So I think people are also realizing from the uh, from the provider side that telehealth 
is actually a viable solution. And you and, and your colleague, John Lynn, had a great story about not only this being something for the providers and those of us at home, but within the hospital setting. Can you tell us a little bit about Caregility and some of the other things that are going on with virtual care inside the four walls of a hospital? Yeah, that was a little bit of surprising uh, use case, but basically taking telehealth, but rather than the patient and the provider being separated by miles, this was literally where a nurse or a sitter, in this case of, of the Caregility story, being able to telehealth into the patient room from a central nursing station. And so rather than having the nurse come in physically to, to the patient's room, they could telehealth in through the app or through the TV and were able to interact with the patient. They could see the patient if this patient decided to you know, remove the, the privacy cover on the camera. Uh, they could then, you know, help them in most cases. And in those cases where they aren't able to help them remotely, they would then know who to dispatch or they would come themselves. So it was really kind of an interesting twist, you know, where telehealth really was more the concept as opposed to the physical uh, replacement for an in-person visit across, uh, you know, where you typically a patient would drive in or, or come in. So that was really unique. And I could totally see more and more organizations deploying the technology in this way, especially with the lack of PPE and all the other issues that go along with uh, managing COVID right now. Yeah. And even just you know, on a regular basis, there are so many times where nursing staffs are stretched thin and beyond going you know, from room to room, hallway to hallway, if people were able to monitor in some telehealth setting, you know, what's going on or communicate with patients. I, I could see where that would be beneficial both for the clinicians uh, and, and also the patients. You know, sometimes if you've been in a setting like that yourself or with a loved one, you know, where they're waiting to see somebody and it seems like hours go by before somebody's able to come come into the room, some of that could be alleviated with telehealth. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's definitely um, a workload um, balancer, if you will, or, or leads to some uh, workload efficiency because you know, instead of one nurse to, let's say, five patients, you can have the ratio a little bit higher because you have a dedicated person who's monitoring it from a central location, right? And so you can maybe monitor seven or 10 or depending on what other devices you have to monitor, I mean, you can get a much higher ratio, which which is good for everybody because then, you know, the, the nurses who are on the floor, you know, know that when they are going into that patient's room. There is a purpose to it. There is definitely something they need to do. Uh, they're able to spend more time because they know that the other patients that don't need them in person are being monitored remotely via their colleagues. So and there's definitely benefits all around. And, uh, and it just goes to show that you know, telehealth doesn't, again, doesn't have to be externally focused all the time. You can use it in multiple settings. How about teledentistry? I got an email from my dentist this morning, you know, saying, hey, just because you can't get out of the house doesn't mean I can't see you. So if you've got any issues, let me know. I haven't tried that yet. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't tried that either. I, I do laugh because I actually, you know, funny enough, I have seen a company that came out with something where it's like a mouthpiece, like almost like what you wear in like playing football or, or hockey or something, you know, those little mouth guards. Apparently you put that in and it's got sensors all around and camera such that the dentist can like see it. And I thought, wow, that's so cool. I can't see this at any other time making sense until like now. <laughs> like, but uh, but again, like just the explosion that's happened and of ingenuity, of innovation that's happened because of COVID-19 has been one of the silver linings of all of this, right? It's really 
uh, you know, made people rethink and reduce and eliminate the barriers to some of these technologies that maybe were in place before. Yeah. Are there areas beyond telehealth because of the COVID emergency that, in a sense, this forced innovation has, is leading us down paths that we might not otherwise gotten to quite as quickly? Are there other areas of healthcare IT that are being pushed forward? Yeah, I think so. You know, I like to think so. Certainly, I think communications along with telehealth have been become very important, whether that's communicating with patients asynchronously via text or email, uh, whether it's communicating with your own staff in a coordinated way, you know, whether it's like a broadcast message or whether it's a peer-to-peer message. I think all of these things around communication have been, uh, well, the lack of it has been laid bare by the fact that we have COVID. And so I think there's going to be investment in those technologies as we start to emerge. I think people are just kind of living with what they've got right now because there's no stomach to implement new things in that area. But I think coming out of COVID, there's definitely going to be a need to look at the gaps that have been exposed around communications. I also think very clearly that people are going to be looking at supply chain, right? Just being able to measure, monitor how much PPE they have, where the beds are, what's clean, what's not clean, what's being sterilized. And and then also you think about HR and workforce management, who's on, who's not, who has to be isolated, what can they do when they're isolated? And all those kinds of things are going to be things that hospitals and um, ambulatory providers are going to have to deal with as we continue to work through this pandemic. As we continue to work through the pandemic, of course, we also have the resulting problem of so many institu- healthcare institutions having to furlough doctors, nurses, and other folks on staff because they're not providing care in other areas. So that, that leads to a couple different things. One being that there are plenty of patients that may not be getting the care that they need. But setting that aside, just looking at it from a financial point of view, as, as these institutions aren't able to to bill and they're not making money and they're, they're going to have financial problems in the future, to some degree, that I assume is going to put a squeeze on the IT budgets if projects can't get funded because these organizations, at least in the near term, are are in a difficult uh, position financially. Yeah, I definitely think that that's going to be the case. I think budgets in general are going to be under strain for a while, at least until they work through the backlog of the patients that have had elective surgeries delayed, right? Until we work through that, there won't be those revenues there to bolster the financial situation. So, you know, there's still some details to be worked out of the financial bailout package, you know, how big will that be and whether that will be enough. Uh, but regardless of whether that comes through, you're absolutely right that the budgets for IT is going to be much more scrutinized than in the past. And I think what that will mean for everybody is that there's going to be a flight to value or back to value, if you want to put it another way. You're really going to have to highlight how you're going to help the particular your customer. Are you really going to provide that ROI? Is it really going to make a difference for their operations? So I think there's going to be spending. I just think people are going to be very, very tuned in as to whether or not you're actually really going to help. Let's talk a little bit about the open source Saner project. This will bring us around to interoperability at some point here, but uh, tell us a little bit about this project and and, and what it uh, hoped to do. Yeah, it's kind of, it, that's one of the big fallouts of COVID is right before this all hit, you know, interoperability, access to your records, control of those records. That was the big topic, right? Information blocking was was going to be the big topic at, at the conferences this year. And then COVID came along and now interoperability sort of pushed to the background. But 
Yeah, the Saner project's pretty interesting. It started by a good friend uh, of 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 the community, you know, Keith Boone, uh, aka Motorcycle Guy on Twitter, uh, over at Audacious Inquiry, and basically it is a fire project that is trying to find an open source way to uh, allow hospitals to see what capacities there are with each other. And so this way you can better as a government or as a public health agency, better plan where patients can go, where resources may be available, uh, where you may be able to redeploy things. So it's, it's basically an open source, open uh, platform that, uh, that Keith and Audacious Inquiry put forward to allow, um, I guess you can say, to allow healthcare to manage itself at a macro level. And that's pretty exciting to see. And of course, it's based on fire APIs and it's going directly into the EHRs and so forth. So, you know, they I think they just got approval and are just starting to roll this out. So we're keeping our eye on that um, project, but pretty exciting. And when you talked at the beginning of that answer about uh, interoperability just before when HIMSS was supposed to take place, uh, the ONC uh, announced their interoperability rules finally. And it was crazy before that because the month of February seemed to be you know, the stories revolving around Epic and companies that supported their approach with uh, some concerns about the ONC rules. And then there were other people, of course, a lot of the tech titans and others who, who were very much in support of what the ONC was doing. The ONC finally came down with the rules and then COVID hit. And there's been very little talk about it since. Has there been anything going on that we should know about in the last six weeks or has it just been quiet? Yeah, I mean, I think on the political level, it's definitely been very quiet. No one's coming out and continue to push either for or against uh, a lot of what was in that ONC final rule. Uh, so from from that point of view, I think it has been quiet. But what has emerged in my mind is that the need for data interoperability has been a problem. It's just not been a problem that people are talking about because they're just finding a way around it. Right? You imagine all these pop-up, uh, facilities that have come around in the various cities and, and run by different organizations and the rerouting of, of emergency, uh, you know, of patients to those facilities. How the heck are we going to put those records back together? I mean, it's going to be a nightmare when we emerge from this to try and remember, okay, well, I went over to this one. So who ran that hospital, that field hospital? Oh, it's this. And so I got to get the record from that and put it back over here. It, it has laid these problems bare. And so although there hasn't been the conversation right now, I think we're going to be talking about it a lot more in the days to come, especially as we try to put all this data back together and put the data together, just not, e- not even just for the patient's sake, but for research, right? And all the things that we're trying to do around COVID itself, we need these records to be cohesive. Thankfully, there are companies that are working to try and solve this problem or people are just finding ways around it. Let me ask you a little bit about your career, Colin, because you, uh, you've you sort of done it from a number of different perspectives. Started as a mechanical engineer, you got into marketing, your social media and, and writing as a journalist now. Uh, what what gives you the rush about what's going on in healthcare IT these days? What, what excites you? Yeah, well, a lot of people ask me that question, like, how does an engineer, a mechanical one at that, you know, get into healthcare and marketing? And and, and really, you know, let me talk about the marketing side. So really, it's because I was a frustrated sales guy. <laughs> for a few years. And I kept complaining about marketing and how they weren't supporting me as a salesperson. And then my manager finally got tired of listening to me and said, okay, well, if you think you can do a better job, why don't you go do it? And that's how I got into marketing. And when I got there, I loved it. 
it turned out that I was, uh, I, I, I really liked working in that space and working with the people in marketing. And so I never left. So I am a reformed sales guy um, uh, on top of being a, a former uh, mechanical engineer. So that's how I got into marketing. But but during that journey, it, it, I was working in a lot of health, IT, uh, working in a lot of IT companies. And for me, I got the greatest pleasure and worked with the greatest people in healthcare. I mean, whenever we had a healthcare project at a hospital or even a payer for that matter, it, you just had that feeling of, okay, I'm not just doing it to help somebody's bottom line. This is actually going to help a member or a patient. It's going to help a doctor. And there was something really nice about that feeling. And then the people in those environments were just so friendly and so, you know, sort of we're in this together attitude. And so I got hooked. And ever since those early days, I just said, decided that I was just going to stay in healthcare and work in healthcare. And, and every day that is still what drives me. It's just the fact that we can do so much more for patients. We can do so much more for physicians and nurses and, and everyone working in healthcare. And, and the technologies that we have now are just so fantastic. And so it's always something new every day. And that, that is what continues to drive me. How will social or how can social media democratize or help democratize healthcare? Yeah, this is a really interesting one. You know, you know, we've been doing, you know, a, a chat with the community I run called HCLDR. Um, I run that with uh, Joe Babian, my co-host. Um, and yeah, you know what? It's really interesting because on social media, title doesn't matter. Everyone is essentially in the same, uh, you know, the same level. Uh, you can have an opinion. I can have an opinion. And we've voiced those opinions online. And what I find is that that's really the great the sort of um, level of the playing field, so to speak, of social media, where you can have a conversation and you can voice uh, your your thoughts and your ideas. And, you know, I may not agree with everything that's said. I certainly don't agree with everything that's said on social media. But it does provide me an extra perspective. I love hearing from doctors who disagree with me and saying, that's crazy what you're producing, what you're talking about. It's never going to fly because of this, this, and this reason. Or when vice versa, a patient you know, puts forward something and we're just like, wow, that's crazy. That's never been done before. But that's the beauty of social media is that you're able to even voice those ideas because in the real world, those opportunities just aren't there. There is very rarely an opportunity for a doctor to sit with a patient and have a rational discussion around something around workflow, right? Uh, and so I think social media has a place or has carved out a place where ideas can be shared, resources can be shared, best practices can be floated between organizations. It really has democratized knowledge, Um in you know, and knowledge sharing in my mind. So I know a lot of conferences are going virtual this spring, you know, out of necessity, but you, you can't replace that person-to-person interaction you get at a meeting. Do you see the conferences bouncing back, if not to what they've been in the past, but at least uh, something fairly close to that? I think over time they will, because there is a strong desire for healthcare to get together in person. I mean, we look how hard it's been to get people to go to virtual visits. Right? It's only because of the pandemic that we're seeing a huge uptick. But I think uh, the the conferences, those will come back. I just think it'll take a lot longer than most people think. Um, partly because, you know, until we have a vaccine, I just really can't see anybody wanting to get together with 6,000, 7,000, 30,000 of your peers, right? Like it's just too risky, especially because you work in healthcare. 
right? You don't want your own workforce to be taken out of the picture should something happen down the road. So I think some of the larger conferences, unfortunately, probably won't be back at that scale anymore, um, at least until we have a vaccine. And then I think it will come back. I think in the meantime, I do think the smaller conferences will experience a bit of a, I won't say rebound, but it definitely will be viable. Because I think when you're talking about 50, 100, maybe 200 people, I think those numbers are not as scary. They're manageable, um, especially if the if the topic is and the and the thrust of the conference is valuable. So, for example, talking something about you know vaccines, definitely going to be a conference around that eventually, and I think a lot of people will go to that. I think equally things around cybersecurity, telehealth, and these types of topics are things that people are wrestling with right now, and therefore valuable. And and I think people will be willing to to go to a smaller conference, a regional one, to take to you know to partake in that. Not so much networking, but definitely the, the learning. But I think overall, we're definitely going to see a huge rise in online, right? So whereas some conferences uh, maybe didn't have an online option before, I think every conference is going to have an online option going forward. Now, before I let you go, one thing we like to do, because we at Look Left Marketing, as well, you know, all the marketing PR firms represent uh, companies, and we put executives in front of reporters and analysts and influencers like yourself. And so I like to ask those of you who do the interviewing. Give me some sense as to, you know, the people you enjoy talking to, the people that are really good, what executives should be thinking when they're doing these interviews, you know, what what works and what doesn't work. Sure. Uh, and I'll, I'll back your question up one step to say, you know, we, we obviously uh, as someone in the media, we get a lot of pitches in, in a day. Our emails boxes are full. And, and so you can, you know, to stand out amongst all the pitches, you really have to do something not special, but but different. And that is basically send me an email as if you know me. Um, and what I mean by that is it's easy to tell when you get a blast style copy and paste email. Like I can tell you really didn't do anything to this email and you just sent it off to like 50 of us in the media. And so when you get those, you, it's just like getting a spam email. You might read it if it's a topic that you're particularly interested in, but more often than not, you're like, hell, this is just something they put together and forwarded to 50 people. It's not really that special. I'm just going to ignore it. So I've met so many different PR people over the years, as John Lynn has as well, and I'm sure you have. You know, Write that into your email. Say, hey, we met at this conference, or hey, I, I listened to your stuff online, and it's great. And hey, by the way, I've got a story. What do you think? And don't pitch me right in the email. Just like start there and then let me come back to you and say, yeah, you know what? Here's what I'm interested in. Uh, and that will help break the, you know, open the door to having a conversation uh, to get your client or get your company featured. And then when we get to the interview, yeah, like right now, I don't need to talk to another COVID expert. Like there's 90 of them, like supposed experts that we can talk to. What I really want to, to hear and listen for is stories around, here's something that's working, right? We don't need any more theories about COVID. What we need is, okay, here's something we put in place and here's some of the results, good or bad, uh, and, and share those because those are the interesting stories where it's something tangible, where it's something implemented. That's what that would really stand out. And that's really what we are looking for all the time. So, yes, it is great to have experts come on and we do interview them. And if your particular expert is notable and all those kinds of things, sure, you'll probably get a, an interview or some a quote. But more interesting will be 
what did you what have you done? Give us the example. What's the outcomes? And that will always get the attention of of media folks. Great, Colin. I appreciate you taking the time here today. Uh, are you doing anything in particular to stay sane during all of this? Over and above all the work you do in healthcare IT, <laughs> I am doing a heck of a lot of video calls because I enjoy seeing people on camera because I can't see them in person. So that is one way to stay sane. And and that of course, and the other thing of course is just you know it's it's starting to get nicer outside. So just being able to go outside for a walk or ride my bike. That's sort of my go-to to to try and keep sane during this time and not go too stir-crazy. Our thanks to Colin Hung, editor of Healthcare Scene, for joining us on the Look Left at Marketing podcast. As always, we hope you'll subscribe to our series on Apple, Google, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, we welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. Looking ahead to our next conversation, we will be talking to Maria Korolov, popular tech journalist who covers cybersecurity, artificial intelligence, and extended reality, and who's also an accomplished science fiction writer. So plenty to talk about. You're invited to be with us for what promises to be a very informative discussion. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of the Look Left at Marketing podcast. Till next time, be well.